You're listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Our first Court Leader's Advantage podcast episode that focused on the coronavirus aired on April the 2nd. At that time, 155,000 Americans had been infected and over 2,800 had died. As of this recording for the May 21st episode, over 1.5 million have been infected and over 90,000 have passed away. Then, most of the country had closed down and sheltered in place. Now, almost all states have reopened. And the future is still uncertain as it appears unlikely that a vaccine will be available before 2021. Courts are facing an ever-growing array of challenges, keeping employees, judicial staff, litigants, and attorneys safe while reopening courthouses, dealing with a still-growing backlog of cases, restarting court operations that ground to a halt months ago, facing the possibility of enormous budget shortfalls. Solutions are scarce, and the need for innovation has never been greater. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Our focus continues to be on how courts are coping with the coronavirus crisis. Today we have with us Chris Gaddis, Court Administrator for the Pierce County Superior Court in Tacoma, Washington. Mark Weinberg, Court Administrator for the Seventh Judicial Circuit in Florida. Angie Van Skoik, Court Administrator with the Municipal Court in Breckenridge, Colorado. Liz Rambo, Trial Court Administrator for the Circuit Court in Lane County, Oregon and Rick Pierce with the Pennsylvania Administrative Office of the Courts. Thanks to all of you for being on today's podcast. Let me start by asking about outreach to your justice partners as you manage the crisis. Now, several of you work with elected clerks of court. Mark, give us an example of some issues you had to work on with the clerks. I want to start just by uh, saying that Florida has 67 counties, and each county has its own elected clerk of court. We have 20 judicial circuits in Florida, so most circuits have more than one county. For instance, my circuit has four counties, so coordination must occur with four clerks. One of my colleagues has seven counties in his circuit. Clerks are vital to our operation, so we must work closely with them to mutually coordinate activities, everything from scheduling court events and sending notices to litigants to Are we going to conduct health checks of courthouse employees? So we keep in very close contact with the clerks of court. Rick, how about with the Pennsylvania clerks? In Pennsylvania, we have 67 counties, and most of the clerks of court are elected officials. There are a few that are appointed, however, uh, that are in those home rule counties. We have around a half a dozen of those jurisdictions across the Commonwealth. They're the custodian of the record, but uh, the president judge has the ultimate authority of the record, and sometimes that does come into play. But as I said, most jurisdictions across the Commonwealth, the clerk's office has remained open. They've had some skeletal staff to provide assistance to the court when they're called upon. And uh, the one issue that we've had in particular to deal with with the clerks of court is providing them remote access to our case management system. They are an integral part of the case management system that we have at the general jurisdiction level. 
as well as the limited jurisdiction, but more so at the general jurisdiction level, our common pleas level. So we've had some mixed results in the sense that are all of those clerks who are not, who are remote accessing into their local area network, their county network, are they getting access? And in that regard, uh, some of it comes down to the issue at the individual county as opposed to what we can provide the state. Are they going through their local area network in order to access our state case management system, or are they going directly to our case management system and not uh, bypassing or going through their local area network? So that's where we do have some, some issues there that are, are being resolved. And I think for the most part, though, we do have a very amicable relationship with our clerks of court. Chris, how about in Pierce County, Washington? Pierce County actually has uh, one of the few appointed clerks in Washington State. We are lucky that we have a tremendous working relationship with our clerk's office. Some of the things that they've assisted us on is right now we, we share a countywide system, at, not from the courts, but all the other justice partners for Superior Court share a links program. And the clerk's office has waived any fees for online access to our court document system. Uh, they've also created a system where domestic violence clerks in the clerk's office will assist petitioners in completing domestic violence protection orders. Normally, this would have been done at several kiosk locations throughout Pierce County, but because most of those are associated with either city halls or police departments, they've had to close to the public. And so now our DV clerks are actually completing those on behalf of the petitioners and then uh, providing those petitions to the commissioner who will then have a Skype or telephone conference with the, the petitioners. But one of the other things that they've been doing is they also work collaboratively with us to fill uh, short notice vacancies. We provide some of our courtrooms have clerk's office employees. Some of them are administration employees. And uh, we work really well, and one of ours is out. We can backfill with one another's employees to make sure that the court can run smoothly. Now, Angie, you said the Breckenridge police have scaled back the number of tickets they're issuing. Is there a plan to ramp back up to full enforcement? They've still been doing full enforcement. We just haven't had anybody out going anywhere or doing anything uh, for them to actually issue tickets. So you know, we might have more people not. Uh, following speed laws and such, uh, where we'd get a few more tickets for those. Um, just because we're having more visitors uh, come up, um, we still have most of the hotels and such are closed until the end of this month. But you know, every weekend we have a lot of people coming up to hike and just kind of enjoy our scenery. So we've had more people around, uh, which will have more potential for tickets to be issued. Um, I think in the past month, I've had uh, one traffic ticket and one uh, animal bite ticket that was issued. So we haven't had a lot of things, a lot of violations happening within town for them to even issue tickets for. Chris, how's the search for an off-site jury assembly room coming along? Uh, it's, it's coming along. We've now included all of our stakeholders. At the beginning, uh, when we were first getting our sea legs on this, we wanted to kind of keep the, the group small, but now we've included the prosecutor, defense, private bar, uh, law enforcement, uh, the jail's been involved, finance. Everybody that's going to touch this project has now been involved in the, in the work group. There are concerns that we're trying to deal with on the, the short-term basis. 
I think most of you, if you're trying to work through this, you realize that you have a, a short-term solution, a mid-range and possibly long-term or permanent changes to your jury system. And right now we've settled on two locations possibly to really narrow it down for what the short-term is gonna look like. And short-term for us is maybe three to four months while we try and figure out a medium or long-term solution. And we're just, right now we'll be working on on the costs for that this week. One of them is a very large convention center in Tacoma. Uh, the other is a, an armory that's right next to the county city building here where the Superior Court is. And so we're just trying to figure out cost estimates, what's going to be the best for the court. And even if one's more expensive than the other, if it provides better service and more safety uh, for both participants, jurors, and our staff, then more than likely go with that. But just trying to work through some of those things. At the same time, trying to figure out what that long-term solution is going to be. We have we've run into so a bit of a snag on that in that you just nobody knows what the, their status is going to be. And so one of the buildings that we were looking at actually had to file for bankruptcy. So we can't communicate with them until a new owner takes possession. So looking at that as a long-term solution, we wouldn't even begin negotiations until October or November at the, at the earliest. Then we've got to find out where all the funds come for to purchase this, whether it's CARES Act fund or uh, rainy day funds that the county has. Chris, I'm curious. If a summons juror refuses to come to the courthouse because he or she doesn't trust that the court will provide a corona-free environment, what does the court plan to do? Well, certainly one of the options for that is to postpone service. We allow postponements for people who have a trip planned, have a you know, a surgery plan, you know, things like that, that are just the normal course of doing business, we allow postponements. If they are refusing, you know, we don't know if they would tell us, right? If they don't respond to the summons, then then they don't respond to the summons. Uh, we do not take any action on that. But what we are trying to do is conduct community outreach and help convince our jurors who we need desperately to show up once we resume jury trials. We're trying to convince them that we are taking the steps to ensure their safety as much as possible here at the courthouse or at an off-site location. Our presiding judge sent a letter to our Tacoma News Tribune, which is our major newspaper here in Pierce County, talking about how normally May is Jury Appreciation Month and all the things that we would have done, but now we can't because there's obviously no jurors in the building. And uh, that led to an interview with the newspaper that really allowed us and even the prosecutor and defense attorney an opportunity to talk about the importance of jury service. And so I think that was a, a really big win for us. I'm hoping that a lot of people were able to see that and understand the importance of jury service. We also have our Public Trust and Confidence Committee, which is a statewide committee, working on a media blitz, if you will, and figuring out a way to communicate statewide the importance of jury service at uh, such an important time in our history. So we've, we've got a lot of irons in the fire, and I'm hoping that we can convince potential jurors that it is safe and uh, show them the hard work that we're going through to try and convince them of that. Mark, what does your court plan to do if something like this occurs? We, too, recognize that there will be some level of apprehension on the part of individuals to report for jury service, and, uh, you know, perhaps understandably so. To try to lessen the level of apprehension, though, I know at least one jurisdiction here in Florida has produced a public service announcement 
showing the steps they're taking to sanitize facilities and reconfigure courtroom spaces. We haven't discussed the particular issue of no-shows, but I suspect, at least initially, there'll be a greater level of understanding, if not leniency, when it comes to these types of issues. Again, as Chris mentioned, uh, our practice is toward postponement as opposed to outright excusal. So I suspect that's the direction we'll be taking. But again, lots of us are working on public outreach to try and uh, stress the importance of jury duty, particularly now. Now, Liz, you actually have a trial coming up as soon as mid-June. What's the court's plan if something like this happens? Yes, in Oregon, I want to emphasize that the law requires that certain in-custody proceedings, jury trials be held. Um, And that is when an in-custody person has not waived their rights to a speedy trial under Oregon statutes. So those are typically major violent crimes. Those are not misdemeanors or anything like that. And so during the COVID pandemic, some jury trials have been conducted in Oregon for those types of cases. So we, as I mentioned, suspect that our first one will be sometime in mid-June. Uh, where the person has been charged with a violent crime and has not waived their right under Oregon law to a speedy trial. And so the question then is, what are we going to do if jurors don't show up? So we have in Oregon a pretty hardy deferral program for jurors to a date that they prefer. Um, And even with that program, we find in normal times that enough jurors appear in order to complete the trials that we have scheduled for the day. So the question about whether or not they'll continue to do that under the pandemic situation has kind of been answered in the other courts in Oregon that have had to go forward with one of these mandatory trials. And they have been, in fact, getting the jurors necessary to complete the trial. So it's likely that we would continue with our current process to defer people from jury service if they're uncomfortable with coming on that date in particular to another date, another month, and would plan to have enough jurors. And of course, we've put all the protections in place that we can to make sure that folks are safe, both in jury assembly and during the trial. Angie, now I understand the town hall might open up within the next couple of months. Now, what's the plan if a defendant tells you he did not speed past that stop school bus, so in essence he's pleading not guilty, but he refuses to come to the town hall because he fears it is infested with the coronavirus? Um, Well, as I mentioned in past uh, episodes, we do offer plea by mail, uh, so he could do a plea of not guilty to get scheduled for a telephone uh, pre-trial conference with the prosecutor and discuss his case with the prosecutor that way. The only drawback with that is if they end up not coming to an agreement of some sort, they would be able to schedule a bench trial. And we're kind of dealing with that right now, not knowing when town hall will actually be open for us to have in-person court. It's kind of hard to figure out when we're going to be scheduling bench trials. As long as people sign their waiver of a speedy trial, we at least can extend it out a little bit to have that happen within 91 days instead of much sooner than that. <laughs> so we, we do have that ability to have them do everything without being actually in town hall. So we're trying to 
actually push that as much as possible because we still have a restriction of no more than 10 uh, people in one space at this point in time. Would the judge actually consider holding a bench trial by phone with the defendant? I don't know. He's very hesitant to do any type of remote hearings right now. I think if this ends up that we're not able to have in-person court for a longer time frame, he will probably have to consider that as an option uh, just to be able to have that occur within the time frame. Because if we can't have more than 10 people, it's kind of hard to have you know officers and witnesses and everything else even there for a bench trial. Uh, so you know we'll have to play it by ear at this point in time. Mark, some employees must take care of their children who are out of school or on daycare. Will you be making accommodations for those employees? Well, we we have been and will continue to address this and other related issues on a case-by-case basis. As you probably know, there's a specific provision in the Families First Coronavirus Response Act that addresses employee leave for out-of-school children. Chris, how about in your court? We've already made several accommodations. We're fairly fortunate that this hasn't been a big impact for us and that we don't have a lot of employees with school-aged children. We have been dealing with some that have some medical issues that have kept them out uh, just for their safety. So we've continued to have the flexible schedule, allowing them to have VPN access to our network from home. And we really intend to, to keep this going after this stay-home order has been lifted. One of the things that we're trying to do is keep as many people out of our building as possible to allow better social distancing. And so if we can keep a few of our staff out while still maintaining the productivity, uh, we plan on doing that. Rick, how about in the Pennsylvania courts? It's individual courts do make their own individual choices, but I will say that I think that what Chris has said about developing some of these or keeping some of these strategies that are being employed now regarding uh, employees and keeping as many out of uh, the buildings as possible while still enabling them to work from home is an ideal situation. Uh, some courts ha- in Pennsylvania have permitted employees to work from home on a rotating basis so that there's always some type of skeletal staff that's maintained at the court facility, but then there are others that are participating from home and doing some work from that way. So that keeps everyone engaged. I think for in Pennsylvania, much like the other states in the country, perhaps we are going with a phased rollout or phased reopening of our state and the businesses, and the courts are obviously part of that. The trick is when you are in a phase where where much of the Commonwealth is right now, where the building is closed to the public and then begins to reopen to the public probably within the next two to three weeks. But the other things like summer camps and schools, they will remain shuttered throughout the summer. And that's going to create a a significant challenge where the staff in their roles, parent or guardian, have not had that issue to confront them before. So this is something that individual supervisors and court administrators are addressing as they arise, as Mark stated earlier. Liz, once your court fully reopens, What's the plan if an office worker tests positive for the coronavirus? Would you shut down the entire office for some period of time? That's a really good question, and I feel very lucky that it's not one I've had to address yet. Rates of coronavirus in our judicial district have been very low 
but we could anticipate this happening in some point in the future. In the next week, we have a meeting scheduled with the public health officer to do a walkthrough of our entire facility for best practices, both for the public that may start to come into the building in greater numbers, and also for the staff, because uh, many of our hallways or pathways between workstations and other things are quite narrow. We have a building that was built in the 50s and um, had different space requirements than as in smaller. So we're going to be meeting with them. And I would anticipate that if somebody tested positive, we would then have another conversation with the public health officer about what would be the best practice given the specific situation. Who is it? Who were they in proximity with? And what was the timeline of symptoms onset and all of those things that are necessary for folks to determine what's appropriate with regards to stay at home. I don't see us going so far as shutting down the building or even the office because we have currently a chief justice order that requires us to do certain things. We may have to find ways to do them differently if the frontline staff is affected to that extent. Rick, how about once the Pennsylvania courts reopen? We are a decentralized state, so I'll give you one example. In Pennsylvania, we have 60 judicial districts or 60 courts. And if you've seen one court in PA, you've seen one court, not 60. <laughs> Still, there are similar or even identical strategies like this one to address this option. Uh, what we have had in some of our courts mainly in our limited jurisdiction courts where someone, either an employee or someone that visited the court tested positive for COVID-19, calls obviously made to the Pennsylvania Department of Health and asked for instructions there to move forward uh, regarding a deep clean of the office. They'll do the, the contact tracing, the Department of Health will. And when that deep clean takes place, whether it's an office or the entire court facility, may mean a closure for 24 to 48 hours. But for us in Pennsylvania, this is really taking a look at your continuity of operations plan and implementing that plan on a temporary basis. What we'll do, for the most part, begin to rotate staff and or judges to either a court facility or an alternate court facilities. Each court has at least one designated alternate facility, and that's usually in an adjacent district court. Even if it's the trial court level, just the courthouse, if, whether it's the entire court facility or just a wing or an office that's closed, those arrangements are included in, in their continuity of operations plan. So we don't expect a significant impact. And staff is fully aware. The big question mark, I think, here is making sure that everyone has communicated what's in their continuity of operations plan, where they're going to go, when they intend to reconstitute their business and their operations. So answering those simple questions of who, what, when, and where. Mark, how about in your court? I want to start by saying we hope to prevent this from occurring at all by stressing the importance of everyone monitoring their own health and not to come to work if they're feeling ill. We, we are making plans for each of our courthouses in coordination with public health officials and facility services staff. Depending upon the layout of the facility, we may have to temporarily shut down an office or a wing or a floor of a facility to allow for decontamination and sanitizing. But the information that we've gotten up to this point would indicate that those sorts of 
interruptions would be pretty minimal. And finally, our wrap-up question. What was the major issue that you had to deal with this week involving the crisis? Rick? Pete, I don't think it has changed a lot from last week, uh, but I will point out uh, two distinct issues that have taken up a lot of our time and a lot of our energy and a lot of anxiety as well. From an operational perspective, I would say reopening to the public because in less than two weeks, most of the Commonwealth's courts will be open and that remains the top priority. Uh, We've had a lot of discussion regarding jury trial operations as we've had on this podcast as well. And we are advising court officials in Pennsylvania to think of the simple solutions first. In a lot of respects, there's no one right solution for each one of our courts since we're a decentralized state, but there are some solutions that are better than others, of course. And we've talked a lot about managing space. I think court administrators now more than ever are forced to become astute facilities managers. And we've talked a lot about this on this podcast uh, this weekend and past weeks. And we should plan to have less space available and not be constricted by a particular time. Flexibility to me is, is key. And we've mentioned numerous times in this podcast, kind of that slogan of Semper Gumby, as one might say. Uh, from a human resources perspective, uh, how we'll address this, the stress placed upon staff and particularly the administrators and the judges. Um, you know, you've heard the term of uh, secondary trauma. And that's generally in reference to what individuals see in the court facility. But I'm also thinking secondary trauma in this place comes into into effect where individuals are doing with the anxiety and the trauma at home. So I don't think we're going to see the extent of the psychological toll of this pandemic that it has taken on our court officials, Um, perhaps not until after the crisis has passed or even sometime thereafter. But unfortunately, I think it will happen. And the such upheaval in our lives inevitably will probably leave a deep scar. Angie? Uh, We're really having to think more about facilities and our spaces. And, you know, I've mentioned before, like that's something that I'm really having to deal with. And this past week, I was talking with our uh, security officers and trying to figure out the best methods to have us have court, especially if we have to limit how many people can be in town hall at one time. So we'll probably end up having two officers there instead of just the one. Um, So we'd have somebody outside kind of being our liaison to bring people in and out and have people wait in their cars if we have that many show up. So, yeah, it's just one of the the many new things we can add to our job descriptions, I think. Mark? Much of our work this past week was focused on what does the resumption of court services look like in terms of what sorts of proceedings can we start to do in person? How many people can we let in to each of our facilities and exactly what that'll look like? Liz? As a matter of fact, when last week's podcast aired on Thursday, Governor Brown here in Oregon had just entered an order for phase one reopening. And subsequently on Friday, our Chief Justice entered an order for courts going forward that really pointed to a couple of proceeding types that our court will have to initiate beginning June 1st. Now, our court has been doing everything remotely that we've been required to do under the Chief Justice order, but as of June 1st, we've recognized that we will have to do some out-of-custody arraignments in person. So like everyone else, we've been planning for how to do that safely, how to bring people in the building on a different 
schedule than we would normally do. So for example, normally we would do that proceeding in a mass hearing, but now we're going to do just a few at a time, lining people up outside, bringing them into the court one at a time, and all of those things that you have to do in order to proceed with doing things in person in a safe way. So that has really taken up the last few days for sure. Chris? Last week was the first week that we had some of our employees on an unpaid standby status. So they are completely out of the building on unemployment. And we have one more administration person going out this week, along with six or seven court reporters. I don't, I'm not sure the number, but just the, the fallout from that and making sure that we're there for the employees, providing access to the employee assistance programs that are available and just providing them other ways to deal with the stress that they're going through. It's not obviously what we want to do, putting people into this unemployed status, but it's what the court needed to do to address our budget concerns and work concerns. So that was probably the most trying thing of last week. My thanks to Angie, Liz, Mark, Chris, and Rick today for sharing how their courts are dealing with some of the practical aspects of reopening in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. And to you court professionals out there listening and keeping our courts going, thank you for all you do. Join us next Thursday, May 28th, as we continue our conversation with our guests. Remember, if you have a question about how the courts are coping with the coronavirus, email us at podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. We'll try to answer your question on a future episode. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, Have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.